0: Own commercial real estate or advise someone who does you're in the right place for a real talk about maximizing tax savings
1: hi and welcome to another edition of capstan live I'm Terry Johnson partner here at capstan tax strategies and I'm excited to be hosting the podcast today our subject today is nonprofits as tenants how does that impact depreciation? and we have a very special guest today Brian O'Sullivan Brian is a tax partner with the accounting firm LG Legacy Group, located in Dresher, Pennsylvania. Brian's area of emphasis is income and tax planning and consulting for high net worth individuals and closely held businesses. Brian is a frequent speaker on technical tax topics, and I personally consider Brian a true subject matter expert in all things depreciation. Brian, we feel very fortunate to have you here today, and we welcome you to the podcast.
0: Great, thanks for having me, Terry. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's gonna. Uh, this is gonna be fun. We're gonna have a good time. Yeah. So, um, Brian, as I mentioned earlier, our topic today is nonprofits as tenants. How does that impact appreciation? We've actually been running into a lot of these situations, and I'm looking forward to kind of getting your thoughts and on this. I think a very complicated topic. So let's get going. Sure. You let's ready? So Brian, it seems like everywhere I go these days, I'm seeing nonprofit tenants going in. Whether if you're in Pennsylvania, a, you know, a state liquor store or a, a Goodwill, or you look at some of the hospital nonprofit hospitals that are taking space in in large office buildings. I mean, kind of the list goes on and on. Are you are you seeing this too? Yeah, and I, I think
0: it's I think we're seeing it more than ever because of what's really happening uh, as far as the shift in commercial spaces mm-hmm. so for example there, there's plenty of articles out there about what's happening to the malls of the world and there's a lot of turnover that's happening there and where traditional foot traffic would be it's okay. just not happening so now there's a pressure to fill those spaces and everything's going online so now that you have these large buildings you've got large empty spaces and now you have landlords that are willing to make better deals or to make some concessions i think that's why we're seeing a lot more nonprofits in these particular spaces at least visibly
1: Right, and I, I mean, I'm curious what you think. Do you think the pandemic has impacted, say, office buildings where maybe you're having, you know, losing some tenants that are deciding to either downsize or go more remote?
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of uh, commercial tenants are doing a lot of soul searching, mm-hmm. trying to figure out, do I really need 20,000 square feet, <laughs> or do I need 10,000 square feet with a hoteling-type environment? Because uh, they're probably going to get a lot of pressure from their employees. Uh, they're certainly getting a lot of pressure from their customers. It says, I don't necessarily need to be there or want to be visible there. So then you have the employees who says, well, I don't really like dressing up every day. I do like working from home and can we achieve that? And if we can smoosh the square footage, the company's pretty enticed. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a carrot there for, for turning a bad thing into
1: a good thing. No, I would agree with that. And I, I, definitely think what you've mentioned are compelling reasons why we're seeing this uptick. And so now we're going to get into the meat of this, yeah. um, you know, you've got, you're a landlord, an owner of real estate, um, and you have nonprofit tenants coming in, um, so you've got this tax-exempt use. Are you automatically stuck with the alternative depreciation system, ADS Lives?
0: No, and I, I think it's important. I, I think the, the immediate takeaway is, no, you're not immediately stuck with the ADS Lives. The, uh, at, at best, sometimes you end to put a little bit of a parting gift where you kind of split the baby. Meaning some portion you could still successfully get with makers, some portion, uh, most likely the personal property inside that space is going to get stuck with the ADS. The, the thing that we're seeing in practice is for a lot of years, ADS was that thing that practitioners didn't really want to get their mm-hmm. hands wrapped around. Nobody wanted to deal with ADS. Nobody enjoyed the experience. Uh, it, it, it was always, it always perceived to be a detriment to the taxpayer, and it was often on the fringes. It wasn't the entire building was ADS, and now i really got to get my hands wrapped around it. It wasn't until we had the business interest limitation under 163J that brought ADS to the forefront.
1: Interesting. And our ability
0: to opt out of that regime pushed us into ADS, and now you had a lot of practitioners opening their eyes going, well, wait a minute, if this is ADS, is it for the whole building? And then wait a minute, ADS is applying, if I have a, like a traditional strip mall, and I have a tenant in one of those spaces, and it's a military recruiting center, so it's a government entity. Was I supposed to be doing ADS on that building proper, or was I supposed to be doing it on the personal? That's where we're seeing more questions about the ADS, because now I got pushed to the forefront because of the business interest limitation.
1: Oh, that's interesting, yep. so that connection there. Yep. And you know, when, one of the things that when we started seeing more of this, you know what we do here at CAPSAM, Brian, is we we create a flow chart. Sure. <laughs> so when we're confused by it, we just create a flow chart, and hopefully it helps people understand it. So I do want to let everyone know that we created a new chart that breaks down the relevant depreciation guidelines and highlights the scenarios in which a taxpayer may actually be permitted to use maker's class lives. So if you are interested, you're listening to the podcast and you're interested in getting that, head to our website, www.capsantax.com, click on contact us, and then just type in the box, you'll have to put your information there and type in the box, ADS flowchart and then we will shoot that out to you right away. I think it's worth, I know Brian, you've seen that as well, and I think it's a good sort of guide to making these decisions, because it is complicated.
0: Without a doubt, and everything as, uh, as a CPA, as a practitioner, we love pictures. We love flow charts, because the alternative is having to go into a master depreciation guide, having to go into our tax research, and then we have to weed through pages and pages and pages of exceptions and, and, and rules just to get to something that Capstan can capture here with the pictures, it's a two-page flowchart. It's fantastic, streamlines the entire process.
1: Well, great, well, thanks for the feedback. (laughs) So, what I'm looking for you you to do, Brian, is give us some, at this point, some high-level guidance on how you actually approach determining if you're using ADS or makers when there's a nonprofit tenant. How does all that work?
0: Sure, so I I really think that, uh, in, in my headspace, there's two stems, or mm-hmm. two thought processes, and that's how I attack whether it's a um, one large commercial property with one tenant, or if it's a traditional strip mall with multiple tenants. There's always two stems. One stem is going to encompass the thought process on the personal property and the land improvements. Okay. So those are together on one stem. The other one is when we're looking at the real property itself, so the real property proper. The, the easier of the two is the first stem. Dealing with the personal property and the land improvements because the tests tend to be fairly linear so in, in the realm of ADS there's there's often times when you have to use ADS right now we're, we're looking at it as uh, personal property or land improvements used in an exempt use right exempt use is one of the mandatory ADS rules there's other times where if you use it less than 50% it's mandatory ADS you use it outside the US it's mandatory ADS. that's not today today's exempt use so we've got the nonprofit tenant and we're talking about what do we do when we have personal property or the land improvements? The thought process is really, uh, one, is it being used in exempt use? Well, if it's being leased to an exempt entity, we have to look to the, the use of the exempt entity. So the answer is yes. So now we have an exempt use personal property and or exempt use land improvement. And once we use it in a exempt use, well, then the, the issue becomes, Do we have to? What, what really is the appropriate life? So oftentimes with nonprofits, it can be um, a little bit of an art form to try to figure out what's the appropriate asset class. Because we, we have guidance from the IRS in um, 87-56 that tells us what the life is. So if we, if we have a commercial tenant in there and they're selling widgets, but they're doing it in an exempt function, mm-hmm. that's usually a 57.0 asset class and the ADS life on that would be nine years.
1: Right, so that's right out of the IRS tables. Right out of the IRS tables,
0: no guesswork, it's very formulaic. The rub, and this is where a lot of practitioners will miss, the rub is you have to use the greater of, the life from the ADS table, so in the example we just gave, it was a nine-year ADS life, or 125% of the lease term, inclusive of options to renew.
1: Now what do you mean by that inclusive? Because that that's yeah. a big thing. Yeah,
0: that, it comes up all the time. Because then you're saying to yourself as a practitioner, well now I gotta look at the lease and figure out, do I have options to renew just to figure out how to depreciate some decorative crown molding? Right. And the answer is yes, it, it's the greater of standard. So oftentimes we'll work with the client and we'll, we'll get a copy of the lease. We'll look at it and we'll ask them, are they seeing the same thing? Are we interpreting it the same way? because the lease will oftentimes include if there's an option to renew in there. It's, mm-hmm. it's called for in the lease. Uh, an important distinction here is, it doesn't matter if the options to renew reset the fair market value. In the case of personal property and land improvements, you'll see when we discuss later when talking about real property, that's a critical determination. Mm-hmm. Here on personal property and land improvements, it's irrelevant. So we look to the term of the lease, now plus you the options you include to renew.
1: those? That you include the options
0: for a personal property and land improvements you're including those always and forever so long as it's in the lease
1: so give us an example So, run us through something like a, you're looking at a mm-hmm. you ask the client for a lease you get something back
0: sure so you go to the provisions uh, often times in the lease it's specifically called for because it's uh, again from a legal perspective they want it to be as clear as day what the actual terms are so that everybody stays out of litigation so what we'll typically do if the lease is a traditional five-year lease and maybe there's two options to renew for an additional three years each. Okay. Okay, maybe it's two options to renew for five years each. It, it, it's, there's no one size fits all here. So if it's a five year lease with two options at five years each, for personal property, you're looking at right now a 15 year uh, life times 125%. The rough math on that is 18.75? Yes,
1: good job.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, so right there, you'd be looking at an example of the personal property inside the building or inside the suite that you that you're leasing to the uh, the nonprofit is gonna have an eighteen point seven five depreciable life. And that's where practitioners start to go off the rails.
1: Because it's different, it's Brian, so different. than the, the tables.
0: It's 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 it departs from the tables and as a practitioner when I get somebody else's work, maybe we're pitching a client, maybe it's a they they just wanna move over, we'll look at the depreciation tables and see what are we dealing with? And when we start to see goofy or unusual lives, the first thing we think of is, ugh, these guys messed this up, right? Or look at them using gap lives, which is not tax. Look at them using gap lives in the tax returns. And sure enough, it's us. Our case of first impression was wrong. And when we actually got the story behind it, we realized, oh, wow, these guys are really ahead of it. And it's actually ADS lives. And then we go, Ugh. ADS because nobody nobody <laughs> wants to do The Collective side. The collective side. And so the, the kicker there is you get a, an unusual life with the personal property. Now in the in say you have a, a commercial space and there's one tenant, so you got something like the land improvement. So you got the parking lot, oftentimes the most expensive land improvement they've got there. So we just came up with an eighteen point seven five life, right? Based on the lease term plus the options to renew. And we go to the tables and the ADS life for land improvements is 20 years. So using the greater of, the land improvements in this example is 20 years for depreciation purposes. But we just found in the other example with the personal property, it was 18.75. So you can see where the greater of, sometimes you have to use the 125% rule. And then the land improvements. In this case, we actually got the life right off the tables because that was the greater of.
1: Now I'm curious, Brian. Do you ever do you see when you're reviewing depreciation schedules that there are some practitioners that might just use the ADS tables and not use the times 125% in the appropriate situation? Sure. So you'll see that sometimes happen. Sure.
0: And the uh, it, it is it accurate? No. Okay. Uh, do we as practitioners? Um, at times there can be depreciation is one of the areas where there can be errors the most classic example is somebody buys a commercial property and they put all the basis on us 39 years
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's not right uh, but we know that we can fix it through change of accounting we can amend at times we can do a cost seg study and find the appropriate lives the same options are on the table when we find somebody's used a nine-year ADS life for the personal property
1: when it should have been the 18.75 when it should have been the
0: 18.75 right. those same remedies to cure it are still on the table the amendment okay so the you can
1: change that now speak to us a little bit about the bonus depreciation because that's a bit hot topic right now everybody wants the bonus depreciation so in your scenario where you've got maybe the land improvements and the personal property are 18.75 for the personal property and 20 year for the land improvements are we getting any bonus on that
0: definitely not Okay. That's, that's one of those. There, there's oftentimes there's some gray space in tax. This is one of those that's not gray space. Once we're in a mandatory ABS scenario, which exempt use is, mm-hmm. then there's no bonus. And that's that's the big kicker, and that's where we can bring some value. When, when somebody buys a property, say, again, commercial strip mall, you've got lots of tenants that are going to go in there. And one of them, maybe it's a large, maybe it's an anchor con, uh, type of tenant, and they have a large space that's there. Well, we want to get ahead of that because you don't want to back of the envelope come up with five and 15 in your lives. That would be inappropriate. So then you get, a, like, say, an engineering study done, you get a cost seg done, and you get that broken out. The other part of the cost seg is it's going to break out the five and 15 that's dedicated exclusively to that nonprofit tenant because the bonus is the issue. It's not you just take bonus on all of the five for the entire space, you've got to carve out the piece of the five and 15 that's exclusive to the nonprofit tenant and there's no bonus on that piece.
1: So the cost segregation study really helps you in that, in that scenario because it would be very difficult, I think, to carve that out if you didn't have the cost seg study. I mean, we're seeing the application of this a lot. The, and, and it's
0: even more, the conclusion's even more exacerbated in the environment of 100% bonus. Where before it was, you look at it, you make a decision, and if you made a boo-boo on depreciation, it's not appropriate, but sometimes it's happened in practice, you make a mistake, and you took bonus depreciation on all the five and all the 15 and you forgot about the nonprofit tenant sitting in there. So you've over depreciated. Well, sometimes when you catch that error years down the road, it maybe the error's cycled itself out. In the error of 100% depreciation, that's, that's always open. And that's a big issue with the IRS is they're not stuck by the statute on issues with depreciation. So if the issue hasn't cycled itself out, and there's still money on the table from the IRS's perspective, they can force the client under audit into a change of accounting method, which can go farther than the statute of limitations. That's where taxpayers can get whipsawed because they think that they've got the statute to protect them, but that's not true on areas of depreciation.
1: That that is so interesting, and it really, to me, speaks to why it's so important to understand sort of the logistics of how, Mm -hmm. how you make these calculations. So, great discussion on the personal property and land improvements. Let's switch gears. As you mentioned, you kind of have two paths. Two steps, yeah. So, let's talk about the non-residential real estate. And can you walk us through sort of how that differs? And, and just w- same kind of thing. Walk us through how you would approach that. Sure.
0: So, when dealing with the, the non-residential real estate, what you're really looking for is something called a disqualified lease. And that's something that's a term we did not talk about with the personal property and land improvements because it doesn't apply to those. Okay. And that's, that's an area of confusion as a practitioner because we're often trying to paint with a broad brush. Just teach me the rule and then I can apply it. But now we have to get into like a more segmented approach where we're bifurcating the assets, personal property and land versus the real property. So now we're over on the real property side and in, in what you're trying to do is find out do you or do you not have a disqualified lease? if you do not have a disqualified lease then you actually have a 39 year asset or potential qualified improvement property of 15 years so that's the brass ring that's what you're shooting for
1: okay so so i get that i understand but let's let's break that down a little more for our listeners of what exactly is a disqualified lease can you define that for us sure
0: there there's four criteria and there's some in practice that we see way more frequently than the others okay so for example, if you, if you purchase the property with tax exempt financing, and that you'd be looking at uh, code like 103, if you did that, you have a disqualified lease or you most likely have a disqualified lease. If you have an agreement with a, a purchase option at the end, and it involves a government or an exempt entity, well then you may have a disqualified lease. If you have a sale leaseback, and this is one, the first two that I just discussed, I see much less frequent in practice, they exist but much less frequent. The sale-leaseback is where you start to see a little bit more of an uptick in frequency because uh, that's that's not uncommon. And then the one that we see far more common than the other three is if you have a lease with the nonprofit or the government entity and it exceeds 20 years, that's, that's going to be what, by and large, pushed us into this disqualified lease scenario.
1: So of the four, that's the one that we really see most... would say that's where we
0: see it most right and the the, it's kind of a good segue into the concept of the options so here's because somebody could say to me well I have a 15 year lease on commercial property however I've got two five-year options so if I include those two five-year options well then Brian I'm at 25 years are you saying now I have a disqualified lease And I'm saying not yet or at least not necessarily so with respect to the the options in the context of commercial real estate there is a concept and that's if the options reset the rent to fair market value. If the options reset the rent to fair market value, then for purposes of this 20 year test and trying to find out if you have ever disqualified these, you do not count the options. So in a 15 a year lease with two five year options and in each, each renewal or each option, it says that rent will reset to fair market value. And understand we're in the, the gray space here of, well then what's fair market value? There's no hard, hard and fast formula on this. Uh, then you have the ability to leave those two five-year options off, and at that point you're at 15-year for purposes of the test. And if you're at 15-year on the commercial space, you don't have a you don't have a disqualified lease for purposes of exempt use. So you'd actually be def- you'd be determined that the commercial property is not being
1: used in an exempt use. Okay, so if you don't have a disqualified lease, what you're saying is that you have the option to use the maker's lives.
0: For, for the building. And the most important part of that is the qualified improvement property.
1: That's, that's by and large, because everybody, if you've talked to clients you say, look, we got to go through all this testing, we've got to do this bifurcating,
0: because we're really concerned about depreciating the building between 39 years or 40. Mm-hmm. They look at you like you have three heads, because they would just say, I'd rather not pay you and just take me to 40. <laughs> uh, so it seems almost silly. The win is the qualified improvement property. If we can keep the building as traditional makers at 39 and not a disqualified lease, well then future improvements, and if you're in the commercial space and you put a new tenant in, the tenant improvements could be significant. And the ability to get those tenant improvements at 15-year with a 100% bonus, you're talking potentially millions of dollars of year one deduction, versus if it is a disqualified lease, then the qualified improvement property becomes 20 years, no bonus dramatic
1: divide. It's huge, and I mean, just for the listeners to make sure everyone understands when we're talking about qualified improvement property, it's any improvement to the interior portion of a building that's Mm non-residential, that is not structural, and doesn't expand the footprint of the building. So you can imagine if you are, you have retail office buildings, you've got tenants coming in all the time, and you're contributing dollars to the tenant improvement, as you said, it could be huge. It's millions. And and, yeah. and getting that bonus on that as well. So okay, that that's a really. Um, so what you're I think the good news here is that if you don't have a disqualified lease and you've got tenants coming in, you're paying for tenant improvements. It's the bigger deal really is on the qualified improvement property. Sure. Right.
0: And there I do have one because whenever I get stuck with a test, I always say to myself professionally, is there a way to appropriately weasel out of this? And that's what I'll tell the staff. It's always a cheap joke, but it's good. <laughs> so can I weasel out of this? So what if I end up where my options to renew do not go to fair market value? or the clients uncomfortable making that determination? Because we just don't know the answer. Well, in the case of the 15-year lease with two five-year options, for purposes of the 20-year test, we're now at 25. So at first blush, that would say, okay, well, now you have a disqualified lease. Well, there's, there's the weasel out component. Can I get out of this unfavorable treatment? And that's a 35% test. And that's a, that's a test where you, you look at the net rentable non-common space. So the net rentable space. And if you, have a, if you have, for example, a nonprofit hospital client that takes the entire building, well clearly the net rentable space is 100% to the nonprofit. The 35% weasel out or exception is not going to apply to you. You're going to be stuck with a disqualified lease. This is for your strip mall where you have nine tenants that are for-profit and then you have the Army Recruiting Center on the end or you have the liquor control board on the end. So it's a non-profit or it's a government entity that's sitting down there. So if I look at that lease and it was 25 years, we, it, would be, it would be almost illogical or unfair to say now the entire building is stained, inclusive of the other nine tenants, because I put one client on the end and maybe it was 10% of the entire building it would seem inequitable that the entire building be stained for ABS. And that's what the 35% test is trying to achieve is some type of equi- equitability there. So the, the 35% test, is it's also additive. So if you have the Army Recruiting Center and you have the, um, say you have like a Planned Parenthood or you have a Goodwill Center also in there, you just add them together to come up with the net rentable uh, square footage attributable to government nonprofits. And you divide by the total rentable square feet. If you're less than 35%, then you're not a disqualified lease. So then you're back to
1: makers? Then you're back to makers. Okay, on the real property. Correct. Okay, but you'd still treat the tenant itself, the five year assets, um, or the personal property, I would should say. Yeah. You would treat the personal property. in the, with the ADS lives that we discussed. Now, talk to us about the land improvements in this scenario because you have the retail center that you're talking about where you might have an, your, your end tenant at the end of the retail shopping center. Mm-hmm. At the end of the retail shopping center, you have a nonprofit tenant and they're taking up 10% of the space. Mm-hmm. How do I depreciate the land improvements where they're only using a portion of the parking.
0: Yeah, it, it, and it's a great exercise too because there's a there's a want in the accounting profession to just proportionally allocate. And in the space of depreciation, that's actually incorrect. So if you have a nonprofit tenant that takes up 10% of the net rentable space in the shopping center, but they have a huge shared parking lot. And it's not that those four spaces in the parking lot are dedicated to the one tenant, it's truly a shared parking lot. So when you have when you have shared assets across uh, differing business activities, you look to predominant use, and that's the standard in depreciation for assets. It's not pro rata. So there's a want to take 10% of the land improvements and put it to ADS, even though we don't really want to, but there's, <laughs> there's a, I could rationalize that, right? So this is a case where the rationalizing actually gives you to the wrong conclusion. So what you would look at is the predominant use on a co-mingled asset, and because the predominant use of the co-mingled asset is in general maker's activities, you would use the maker's lives for the land improvements. So in this case, if you have a bunch of tenants that are in there operating in like a a 57.0 activity, there's nothing special going on, it's not a chemical plant, right? Uh, So then you would look at the land improvements, and those would be 15 year then under the IRS tables. And
1: you could take the bonus on that. And you would be able to take the bonus. Okay, beautiful. So I would think, I mean, from what I've seen, that happens a lot where you've got the coming old parking mm-hmm. and you've got a, so that, that 35% test is, does it matter in that situation? If, uh, I guess if you are over the 35% test, would it matter?
0: It, it's, it's, if you are over the 35, meaning more than 35 is dedicated to a nonprofit, mm-hmm. then you're in a weird space. Okay. Weird is the technical term. So again, predominant use is the standard. So the 35% test only applies to real property. So there's a distinction that's there, and, and I should even be better at that, to the non-residential property. Okay, because sometimes real can be land improvements. But the, the 35% test is only for the real the non residential property. So then you say for the land improvements, I want to take a look at the predominant use. Well, it's difficult if not impractical because nobody's out there clicking which cars are going to what shops. So realistically, I would, as a practitioner, probably extrapolate based on the presence of the tenants in the facility. And if I found that 40% of the square footage was allocable to the nonprofit entity, well, if I'm talking apples to apples and I was comparing that to the 35%, then for the non-residential property, that would give me one conclusion, that perhaps the real property there is a disqualified lease. However, I'm looking at land improvements, and they're co-mingled. Forty percent is not predominant. Fifty percent is considered predominant. So in that case, you could have it where the the non-residential property, the commercial property, is a disqualified lease and would be subject to ADS. But the land improvements themselves were predominantly used in non-ADS activities, so you wouldn't bifurcate it. You wouldn't do 60 40 it would be a hundred percent for depreciation purposes under makers
1: so this is a great segue Brian into um, I was gonna throw out an example to you and it just by happens that you use this 40 percent so I'm, I think this is a great example let's kind of bring that home and what you just went through we have an office building mm-hmm. with a new nonprofit tenant coming in taking up 40 percent of the space there's a 15 year lease we have two pre-negotiated five-year options. The landlord is contributing to the tenant improvements. Let's quickly walk through how you would do the real property, the personal property, and the land improvements.
0: Yep, I would break them out into two stems, because if we throw the whole fact pattern into the soup, (laughs) it gets a little bit difficult to to, uh, dice up. Throw it into two stems. First, I try to always attack the more complicated one, so that after I'm tired, I can do the easy (laughs) one and finish my day. So if I start with the uh, commercial property tests, so then I say to myself, one, I'm testing to see if it's a disqualified lease. Uh, again, oftentimes there's four criteria, but the three tend not to apply. Frequency-wise, tend not right. to apply. The fourth one is usually the greater than 20-year lease term. So I say to myself, all right, according to the lease, what's my term? I got a 15-year term in the fact pattern?
1: With two pre-negotiated five-year options.
0: So, by default, at just doing simple math, my first blush would say I'm at 25 years. Then I say, can I find an exception so that I don't have to count those options? And that would be looking at the lease agreement and finding out, do the options reset the rent to fair market value at that period in time? Right. That's where we would, neg- we would work with the client, find out, well, who's determining what we think fair market value is, because oftentimes the client is way more plugged in to what a reasonable, um, you know, rate per square foot is in their market for that particular property in its use. So you'd work with the client to find out, does it reset? But you'd also work with them so that they understand the implications if we don't, or if they don't. It's a big implications. It it could be huge. So in this scenario, if the options do reset to fair market value, then for the commercial property, I do not have to include the options for purposes of the 20-year test. So I'd be left with a 15-year lease for purposes of the test. That's less than the 20. So right out of the gate, I do not have a disqualified lease for purposes of this exercise. Okay. Then I'd be looking at the tenant improvements. So now that I know for the commercial property, it's not a disqualified lease, well now I'm gonna run the tests on the improvements to see do they qualify for qualified improvement property sometimes when we do fit outs, sometimes the, some of the stuff that gets fixed could fit in, uh, flip into 39 years. So, for example, if they knock out some of the windows to make them better. Windows, structural Could items. be structural items. Those could also be in there. So there is, there is a uh, inclination in practice to say, hey, why do I need somebody to look at the AIAs or to look at the fit out? Can't I just throw it all into 15-year? And the answer is, well, not really, because there could be things that are structural um, or things that aren't covered by qualified improvement property. That would, be, that would go back to 39-year. So anyway, I look at the tenant improvements, and uh, for sake of this exercise, let's say they're all qualified improvement property, then I'd be looking at 15-year life, and then I'd be looking at the applicability of bonus, or if the client's motivated opting out of bonus, just to see what options are on the table. But that's how I would walk the fat pattern down on the commercial property proper. Okay. Then flip, the, flip it back right. to the exercise for the personal property, and understand that the the criteria for the personal property or the land improvements being considered exempt use and therefore mandatory ADS is much less. You have much more, much less ways to weasel out or find exceptions. So for the exempt use, we find out: well, is the personal property being leased to a nonprofit tenant and used in the nonprofits trader business? The answer is almost always yes. Yes. In this example. So then you would look at the personal property. And then you would just try to find the appropriate life under ADS. And that's when you would look at the, you'd have to find out the guideline class from the IRS tables. Oftentimes that's a nine year life or a 12 year life, depending on when you're dealing with a nonprofit. Then you would apply the lease term plus the options to renew. Which were 25. Got us to 25. And again, I don't get to exclude them from the exercise on personal property. I have to include them on the exercise for personal property different from what we said on the commercial. So now I'm at 25, and then I have to multiply that by 125%. So, we are way yeah, over way over that.
1: We're way over 9 or 12, Ryan, on that one. So we will have to go with that, correct?
0: You're, well, yeah, so you're gonna be comparing a 9 or 12 year life to possibly a 30 year plus life, mm-hmm. and you'd end up with a 30 year plus life for the personal property, which is not a great conclusion for depreciation, plus no bonus. And then you'd be looking at the land improvements. And the only thing that makes land improvements a little bit different from the personal property is personal property is easy. Either the not for profit is using the personal property or it's not. Oftentimes it's not commingled with somebody else who's, who's right. not. The land improvement's a little bit more different because when you're looking at a sidewalk, is the sidewalk, the land improvement, leased exclusively to the nonprofit or is the driveway exclusively to the nonprofit? Or is it commingled? And when it's commingled you'd go through that exercise that we talked about with predominant use.
1: And I would say in I mean, generally speaking, that the parking lots are commingled. Sure. The, the only time I see it realistically in practice is when you have
0: the the quote unquote hospital client occupies the entirety of the building.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And when it occupies the entire entirety of the building, then it occupies the entirety of the parking lot. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's what we see.
1: Then you would use the new it would basically be the same light that you came up with for the personal property. May or may not
0: because when we, we had that fact pattern earlier, we fit in that weird space where we actually got 20 years on the land improvement.
1: Oh, right. In this
0: example, we, we found out that it would be a 30 year plus life when applying the 125% uh, test. So you're right, in this case, the personal property and the land improvements would be depreciated at a 30 plus year life while you have the building, not the disqualified lease. The building's gonna be at 39 and the qualified improvement property is at a 15.
1: And then in your scenario, just on the real property side, if we determined that the options were pre-negotiated, we would be an ADS and there'd be the Qualified Improvement Property would be at 20 years, 20-year right. life, correct, Brian? And then you would have no bonus. Correct.
0: That's the biggest rub.
1: Right. Okay. So I just want to make sure I had that straight. So, Brian, we're kind of nearing the end of the, of the podcast here, and I, I think it'd be great if you could just give us... A little words of wisdom if you had one or two kind of takeaways if you had one or two takeaways from our talk today what would you advise folks that are listening sure and and,
0: uh, again exclusively from the practitioner perspective as somebody uh, for years didn't want to really address ADS and the only times we had to was when it was really at the forefront like it was really in our face that you know it was used outside of the US So now, now that we have ADS as a part of our vernacular every day, mostly because of the one hundred and sixty three J issues, uh, take a look at your commercial clients and if they're, if they do have anything there with respect to nonprofit tenants and if you've, if you've done it right and you've gotten ahead of it and you have ADS assets currently on your books, just talk with your client and find out if there's been turnover. If there's been turnover, Uh, then perhaps the change in use rules apply. And you have an opportunity to move from ADS lives on those assets that are still there, over into maker's lives. Now bonus is always off the table, once it's a mandatory ADS, because bonus only applies in the year it goes in service. So even if you were ADS in year one, but then because of a change in use, the tenant left, and a new tenant goes in and it's a for-profit tenant, well then the bonus doesn't come back on the table. But it's possible that you can move over into a maker's life and at least get out of some of the pain, like a really exacerbated example that we talked about with a 30-year ADS. It's possible to move over into a better life. So I would say that that's one, one opportunity that's there. Okay. The, and the other part is just really um, not getting too comfortable with, well, can I just throw everything into 15 years and not look at it? And in the landscape of 100% bonus depreciation, you really could be materially distorting taxable income in that year if you just quote unquote throw everything into 15, if you don't look at any of the AIAs, if you don't engage an engineering team to do a cost seg, you're taking a leap of faith that there's nothing that's going to be 39 years and not eligible for bonus. So if you really messed up and you missed that, there was uh, outside facade work, if there was outside structural work, if there's new windows going in, it could be a million bucks. It could be 600,000 bucks. And in the landscape of 100% 100 depreciation, you're pulling that all in, in year one, as a deduction currently, when really it should be spread out over 15 years, 20 years, 39 years, whatever the appropriate life is. So two words of
1: caution. Okay, great. Well, Brian, I I think that about wraps it up, and what a great discussion. I want to thank you, Brian O'Sullivan, for being our guest today, and your expertise is I you're just on a whole nother level, Ryan. I appreciate it was it. it was fantastic. This was great. And we really you know appreciate you taking the time to join us today for our podcast. I'm Terry Johnson here with our producer, Aaron Strongen, hoping you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can go to our website at www.capstandtax.com and click on the podcast tab. Also, just a reminder, if you want that flowchart that Brian and I were talking about, that can also be found at the same website under the Contact Us tab and just enter ADS flowchart. Thanks for joining us on another edition of Capstan Live.
0: Thanks for listening to Capstan Live. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Visit our website at capstantax.com for more info on everything we discussed today, plus breaking news, industry blogs, and more. Have a profitable day.